Amen. We have been in a series of studies looking at the seven deadly sins, the the weapons that the enemy uses against us to cause division and pain and heartache and suffering in our life and what God's Word and the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, teaches us of how we combat can combat those those weapons. And so next week we wrap up our series while looking at the deadly sin of pride, but today we are going to look at the deadly sin of wrath, of the anger that can exist within the life of an individual and how it boils over and causes all kinds of pain and suffering in our lives and the lives of individuals that are around us. The truth of the matter is we're, we're just one decision away from disaster. One instance, one, one confrontation, one, one thing that goes against us or rubs us the wrong way and our reaction in uh, the wrath that we are all capable of, the anger that could be simmering underneath the surface, boiling over and causing complete disaster in our lives. Today we're going to be looking at an account in the Old Testament of exactly that and the turmoil and the pain that it caused. Now, Frederick Beckner says this about the deadly sin of wrath. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last twosome morsel both pain you are given and the pain you are giving back, In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And much like how the Inuits would catch the wolves that we looked at last week and how lust can cause such harm to ourselves, so too anger and wrath will do the same thing. In the moment, it may feel like You are accomplishing something, and there may even feel a sense of peace or joy come over you in the moment that you lash out in wrath and anger. But what is left usually is just the opposite of that which you were hoping to find in and through that expression of anger, that expression of wrath. And so we are going to be in the Old Testament this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 34 verses 13 through 31, in a message titled, The Grapes of Wrath. Genesis 34, verses 13 through 31. I would invite you at some point this week, possibly today, if you find time to to read the chapter for yourself and allow God to speak directly into your hearts, uh, that he would reveal to you certain things that that maybe you would see personally in the text that he would draw out for you and, and lay on your heart as well. We will primarily, primarily be covering verses 13 through 31 today. Now, in Genesis 49, uh, verses 5 through 7, we read of an encounter of Jacob on his deathbed with his sons. He has brought all of his sons around him, uh, Jacob is, is dying, the one who uh, wrestled with God and had his name changed to, to Israel, uh, the great patriarch, the, the, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. 
Uh, he is coming near death, and he brings all of his children around. And in Genesis 49, 5 through 7, we, we read these words as he comes to place the blessing upon two of his sons, Simeon and Levi. And we, we read in Genesis 49, 5 through 7, it says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, what he is referring back to are the events that we are going to be reading in Genesis 34. What, is he, what he is alluding to on his deathbed as he has his 12 sons around him and he addresses Simeon and Levi is he is going to be recounting and remembering the decision that they made that really brought disaster that carried and followed them throughout their life. And so we see that we are just one decision away from disaster. Now, in our text, what we find in Genesis 34 is that Jacob's daughter, Dinah, they're living in a town called Shechem. They were supposed to go to Bethel, but Jacob was not completely faithful to what it is that God had called him to do, and he, shot, he stopped a little short. It's a great testimony of us to say that God doesn't just call us to obey 80% and to just go as far as we want to go, but we need to go where it is that God has called us to go. And as a result, they stay in a place, they start to become friendly with the inhabitants of that land, and Dinah goes out one day to, to see what the women of the land are up to. She goes out basically to, to embrace the culture, to go out and to mingle in with those that God had said, be careful they don't worship me. They have a different set of ideals. They have a different God that they worship. And, and she goes out and she gets mixed into some events there and she meets an individual and that individual takes advantage of her and rapes her. His name is Shechem and he is the prince of the region. And this atrocity occurs. This horrible event takes place to where Jacob's daughter is raped. And word gets back to Jacob, and word gets back to her brothers. And there is a rage and an indignation that arises in their hearts, and rightfully so. Our hearts should be angered, and our hearts should have a righteous indignation rise in our hearts when we see injustice, when we see image bearers of God being mistreated. But they would act upon it in an ungodly way. They wouldn't seek true justice. They would seek revenge. And as a result of that, we would see a decision they made brought complete destruction and decimation to themselves and to others as well. So they come and they meet with Shechem and his father because Shechem is in love with Dinah and he wants to marry her. And the brothers come up with this plot. They come up with this scheme that uh, on the, uh, they, they could marry each other if all the men of Shechem would be circumcised. And so the men of Shechem agree to this, and they all get circumcised, and then Simeon and Levi go throughout the town on the third day when they are incapacitated, and they murder all of the men of the city, everybody. They murder everybody, That all the men of the city. They kill each and every one of them. 
And then the other brothers come into the city and pillage and plunder the city and take everything of any value and worth, even take the wives of these individuals and the children of these individuals and enslave them. They took something that was an unjust act and they responded with revenge and retribution of other unjust acts. And wrath will always lead us to produce several things that actually have the adverse effect in what it is that we desire to see accomplished. You see, the grapes of wrath, first and foremost, produce perverted justice. At the very heart of wrath is usually some form of justice. But what the enemy does is he takes the justice that God elevates, which is right and which is true, and perverts it. The enemy always takes good gifts that God has given to his people and perverts them. God is a God of justice. Look, everybody that spends eternity separated from God in a very real place called hell deserves to be there. Everybody that spends eternity in a very real place called heaven because they place their faith in Christ Jesus doesn't deserve to be there. One satisfies the justice of God. The other satisfies the grace of his nature. He is a God of justice, but wrath and anger pervert that justice because we make it to be about ourselves. It's our kingdom that is encroached upon that causes anger to well up in our lives, that individuals have maligned us, individuals have harmed us, individuals have said something against us, and so therefore we have this sense of justice to prevail, and we strike back. But what we'll see in the life of Jesus is that even though there is such a thing as holy anger, it is never when he himself is maligned, but only when the things of God and the name of God is maligned. And so the grapes of wrath produce perverted justice. Look at verse 13 of our text today. In Genesis 34, it says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. You see, it causes us to, to respond to these things in worldly ways, in worldly manners. God doesn't call us to be deceitful. God calls us to be the light in a perverse and a dark generation. God tells us that we have the truth on our side. We don't need to be deceitful with anybody. We have God's word. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. We don't need to act deceitfully. We should not act deceitfully. That is counter to what it is that God has called us to do. But we see here Simeon and Levi devising this plot, devising this plan, because the truth of the matter is they're not concerned with justice. They want revenge. Their name and their status within that area. They feel like they, they, they have been maligned in some way through this devious act that instead of caring and concerning for their sister, we'll see in the text that really nobody really cares so much about what happened to Dinah. It's their status. It's their reputation. It's their name that has been encroached upon. And now they respond in wrath and they respond in anger. Dante would write this a, a, about what Wrath is, wrath is a love of justice perverted to revenge and spite. We see this play out in verse 25. In verse 25, we read that on the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Now, there was a law that said there should be retribution, that there should be justice 
with what transpired to Dinah, but it wasn't to go and to kill every individual that was in the city. That's a perverted justice. That's us taking upon ourselves the rightful place of God that says this is the proper response to the evil around you of the world. And so they go and they kill individuals that had absolutely nothing to do with what transpired. They, they, they didn't have any part in what it was that happened. And they took out their wrath. Uh, getting revenge against Shechem and his father wasn't enough. They wanted to get revenge against everybody that was in the city. It is a perverted justice. In John Steinbeck's great classic literary writing, the Grapes of Wrath, he, he, he writes this. It's a great book about the Joad family. If, if, if you never read it, I would encourage you to, to do so. It's one of those American classics. He writes, and I believe this is the 25th chapter, he writes this. And in the eyes of the hungry, there is a growing wrath. In the souls of the people, the Grapes of Wrath are feeling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. Now, now, notice this. In the eyes of the hungry, there is a growing wrath. Look at the world around us. The world is hungry. There is a void that is in the life of individuals that they are looking to feel, and they are hungering for justice. They are hungering for righteousness. Now, they wouldn't articulate it in that way. They would articulate it in the world's standards, in the world's way, but everybody has a hole in their heart that they're looking to fill. Now, remember, we looked in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But yet we cannot produce righteousness in and of ourselves. The righteousness that we all hunger for, the righteousness that individuals that are separated from God desire to fill that hole in their heart with is the righteousness of God. But the hungry, there's a wrath that is growing. Look at the world around us. Look at the response of individuals. You can't disagree with anybody anymore without it turning into a violent or physical altercation. There's no such thing as disagreeing with anybody anymore. There is a hunger that is producing a wrath in the hearts and the lives of individuals separated from God at a rate and at an intensity that this world has not seen in a long, long, long time. We see that all around us, the decimation and the destruction that is wrath and anger that is boiling over. But notice he goes on to say, in the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. Now, the title of his, uh, of his book really came from his wife. And it came from the battle hymn of the Republic in the line where it says, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Now, this is a uh, look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 to 20, where it talks about Jesus putting uh, and God calling for the, the harvest of the grapes and Jesus crushing down in his wrath the winepress. In other words, in our hearts and in our lives, we always, always will be tempted by the enemy to place ourselves in the position of God. 
There is a justice coming. There is a wrath that will be poured out upon the enemies of God, but it is not for us to run ahead of God to bring that wrath and to bring that justice and that judgment upon other individuals. It is our job as the church to proclaim the gospel to those that are separated from God so they don't experience the wrath of God on that day. It's not for us to come. Even Jesus, when he came in the flesh the first time, he said, I didn't come to judge the earth. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to seek and to save the lost. Why? Why did he not come to judge the earth? You know why? Because the earth has already been judged. We talked about this before. There are many individuals where, where, where I grew up. There are many individuals. It was, it was one of the most common tattoos that I would see individuals get. Only God can judge me, right? From, from the, the famous theologian Tupac, only God can judge me. And individuals got that tattooed all over themselves. And the truth of the matter is, yes, only God can judge you. But here is the reality. You've already been judged. You're guilty. And your sin separates you from a holy God. And only through faith in Christ Jesus will that guilt be removed. And you no longer have to have wrath poured out on you on the day of judgment. Because Christ Jesus satisfied that wrath for you on the cross. What our wrath does is try to put ourselves in the position of God. To seek a justice that has been perverted. Instead of turning things over to the Lord. Look, when somebody maligns you. When somebody spits in your face, when somebody is out to harm you, one of the most Christ-like acts is to put it back in the hands of God. Look at Jesus and on his trial. He could have called, called down a myriad upon myriad of angels, but he allowed himself to be maligned for the glory of God. Why? Because he trusted in God. He knew that God the Father was going to fulfill everything that God the Father had promised. It shows our great faithfulness and our trust when we can turn those things over, those emotions, when we can turn those things over to the Lord and trust in him that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. But not only that, the grapes of wrath produce perpetual pain. Look at verses 28 and 29. Look at what it causes them to do. On the outset, the righteous indignation that they had for justice over the, the, the thing that uh, had happened to their sister, the evil that had been perpetrated against their sister, it boiled over into this perverted justice. And look at what it does. It just causes more and more pain. It's like the old Tom and Jerry cartoon where Tom would pull out one knife and then Jerry would pull out a bigger knife and then Tom would pull out a little gun and then Jerry would pull out a bigger gun and then Tom would pull out a bazooka and then Jerry would pull out this missile launcher and it was just back and forth, back and forth and they would try to outdo one another. And when we try to find peace and when we try to find justice with our own wrath being satisfied, then all we do is cause more perpetual pain. Verses 28 and 29 says this, they took their flocks and their herds after they murdered all the men in the city, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives. And that was in the houses they captured and plundered. They enslaved other individuals. Now, here's the thing about scripture. Here's the thing that I love about God's word. It paints picture. It paints pictures of people as they really are. 
If Moses was tr really trying to communicate a falsehood, he would have cleaned all of this up and made all the stars of the Bible just glisten and gleam and remove all of the stains and all of their filth. But what this shows us to is God's word is not about Jacob. God's word is not about Abraham. God's word is not about Isaac. It's not about David. It's not about us. It's about Jesus and the fact that he is the only one that is unblemished. He is the only one that is unstained. He is the only one without sin. But yet it also shows us that even the most stained, even the most depraved individuals through faith in God Almighty can be cleansed and can be used for his glory. That's what we see in God's word. But their wrath caused them to do evil and wicked things in response to evil and wicked things. It's a perpetual pain that continues to go and flourish and exist and keep on and keep on. We also see that the grapes of wrath produce phony peace. They don't truly produce peace. The grapes of wrath do not produce any kind of real lasting peace. It's a phony peace. Maybe satisfied in the moment, but the truth of the matter is there's still no peace. In fact, Jeremiah would say this. You, you claim peace, peace when there is no peace. There is no peace in that. We see in the subsequent verses there in verses 30 and 31 that Jacob comes to Simeon and Levi and says, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Look, there's no peace. You haven't brought any peace. In fact, you cause more tension with us and those that are around us because you try to respond to evil with evil. Now, also notice, this is the first time Jacob really speaks into the matter. Jacob should have been on the front lines dealing with this situation, and he waited to the very end. And the only reason why he's mad is because now he might have to deal with the subsequent actions of his children. We can no longer afford to be absentee in our households. We, man, look, I don't care if they like it or not. Phone check. I'll, I'll check your phone in a second. My kid, I'm check your phone. Uh, you, you need to be involved in their lives and know what, what, what is going on. What is happening? We need to be discipling our children, pouring into their lives. They need to see in us. Simeon and Levi, they, they saw a, a, a father that just absconded his duty. He didn't step up. He didn't address this at all. Our children need to see that we stand for the things of God, that we stand for righteousness, that we stand for what it is that God says that his people should stand for. Now, the wrath of man, it's the idea that my fist, that my tongue, that my gun can right the wrongs of the world. That, that's really what... Human wrath, that's what the enemy perverts this idea in our hearts and our lives is that, is that if I just hit hard enough, if I just use my words sharp enough, if my aim is just clear enough, then I can right the wrongs of the world. You know, there have been 101 individuals that have won the Nobel Peace Prize since 1901, 101, and 24 organizations. We got any more peace than we had back in 1901? Think of all the wars that have been fought. World War I was the, the war that would end all wars. It was a great war. It was going to end all war. After this one, everybody was going to see that war wasn't the answer. How many wars have we had since World War I? 
Because the wrath and the indignation of man cannot produce true peace. It's a phony peace. It cannot produce any real lasting effect. James 1, 19 through 20 speaks directly into this reality. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. That hunger that individuals are looking for, it will never be satisfied by the wrath or the anger of man. It can't do it. So what is the answer? Is there any hope? Is there any answer? Well, where wrath is concerned with revenge, Christ is concerned with restoration. Wrath says, get revenge. Christ says, preach the gospel, because I want to restore. Colossians 1, 19-20 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile or to restore to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, the devil will try to tempt us and get us to believe that if I just shed enough of their blood, whoever they are, whoever is on the other side of me, if I just shed enough of their blood, then there will be peace. But the reality is, guess what? They think, if I just shed enough of their blood, then there'll be peace. And we all get caught up on the hamster wheel of wrath, and the enemy just laughs as the bodies start to pile up. You know what will bring peace? Not my blood, not your blood, not the blood of our enemies, the blood of Jesus Christ. That and that alone brings peace. Now, why does the blood of Christ make peace? Why is it the blood of Christ? Because without it, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the forgiveness of sin, hostility and enmity remain. Peace is what we lost in the Garden of Eden when man elevated themselves to the position that is rightfully due God. Through Christ Jesus and his shed blood on the cross, it's peace that is restored back to the brokenness of not only with man and God, but eventually with man and each other. That's why we refer to each other in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ, because that crack that was uh, there the moment that man sinned against God, there was division that happened between them and God, but also each other. Look how quick they started throwing each other under the bus, and it was this person and this person, and and already they were combative against one another. But Jesus restores that, and he establishes once again in Christ Jesus that peace through his blood. And the only way to bring hostility and enmity to an end in this world is is uh, 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 is the source of the hostility and enmity sin being defeated. And only in Christ Jesus do we find that. Now, the difference between the church and the world is not the desire for peace. Look, everybody wants peace. Everybody wants peace. I, I believe in the, even the anarchists of our society, they want peace. It's a, it's a very perverted and depraved sense of how they obtain that peace. But everybody wants peace ultimately. We all desire peace. No, no, no. The difference is the church accepts God's terms of how we get that peace and the world wants it on their own terms. The church accepts the fact that only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ can we have peace, and the world completely rejects Jesus Christ and his plan of salvation. So 
What is the answer? Just be doormats for the world? Is that who we are supposed to be as Christians? We just let people just treat us however we want, treat uh, us as persons, just whatever the case may be. We're just to lay down and we're just to let them act however they want to act. That's not what Jesus shows us. I think there's this misconception of who Jesus is, right? Jesus is is this individual with flowers in his hair, and he's just kind of walking through life, and he's just throwing glitter everywhere he goes, and he's just this kind of milk toast, kind of just this individual that's just okay with everything, and it's all about love. Jesus wasn't a hippie. Jesus was the son of God. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. Notice the separation. Be angry and do not sin. If you're angry and that's a sin, you can't say be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Here's the thing I love about Jesus. Jesus flipped over a table in a second. I like that. I like that. You slap Jesus' dignity, he'll turn the other cheek to you. You slap the dignity of his Father in heaven, and you turn a house of prayer into a den of thieves, and he'll come and he'll start flipping over some tables. In fact, I would say this. A Messiah who is not willing to flip over tables is no Messiah worth following. Why? Because of his righteous indignation, that he loves the things of God so much that when he sees individuals trampling upon them, that he will make a stand for them. There are things in our life, there are things in our world that ought to cause us to flip over some tables. Since 1973, we've murdered nearly 70 million babies in this country and said it's legal. It's right to do it. That ought to cause in the heart of every follower of Jesus Christ righteous indignation to say those are image bearers of God Almighty. Those are our most defenseless neighbors, and we should stand and be the voice of our neighbors. We ought to flip over some tables. Child abuse, sexual, physical Abuse of elders, abuse of anybody that is an image bearer of God, that ought to cause a righteous indignation in our hearts to go and flip over some tables because it's an affront against our Holy Father. When this is maligned, when our brothers and sisters are beheaded for their beliefs, there ought to be a righteous indignation that wells up in the hearts and the lives of God's people that go and start flipping over some tables. When people pervert the gospel, to make Jesus nothing more than Santa Claus, that if you rub the genie on the lamp just enough that he'll grant every wish that you ever desire and we relegate the cross of Jesus Christ as a loophole for you to have as much as you want of this world, that ought to cause righteous indignation in our hearts and we ought to flip over some table. But the church, no, 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 no. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to make anybody upset. God's upset. And his people should be too. That's not a true reflection of who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. 
H.W. Beecher, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of H.W. Beecher. He's a very liberal theologian. There's a lot of his doctrine. I mean, he's doctrinally, he's bipolar. He's all over the place. You don't really know where H.W. Beecher stands on something. It's like he says this, he says this, but I will say this. He, this quote really gets to the heart of, I think, of what it looks like for an individual to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to truly reflect Jesus Christ. A man who does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. A man that does not know how to be shaken to his heart's core with indignation over things evil is either a fungus or a wicked man. That ought to be a check engine line in our hearts. If we become so desensitized to the evil of this world that is a stench in the nostrils of the God we say we serve, who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for us, if our hearts, we can look at those things and become so desensitized that we say, eh, it didn't really affect me. But yet you can be so angry when somebody cuts you off in traffic, when somebody maligns your name, when somebody harms you or your family. If you can be indignant over that but not indignant over the things that Jesus got indignant over, that's a check engine light for each and every one of our hearts to say something is wrong. When I care more about my name than the name of God, something is wrong. And it's not the emotion of anger. It's what causes us to be angry. Because the concern of Jesus is restoration. The concern of the church should be reflecting his concern. We should be reflecting that back into a lost and a dying world. What it is that Jesus is concerned with ought to be the concern of us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so how do we say not today, Satan? What does that look like? Well, Matthew 5, 7 tells us this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Look, there are people that are going to do all kinds of things to us. And the mercy that we receive by God, we ought to extend to other individuals as well. Is that easy? Absolutely not. Is that biblical? Absolutely. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy is, look, grace is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. There are all kinds of individuals in this world that deserve something far greater than what it is that maybe the justice system uh, dishes out. Maybe individuals that have harmed you, they... They deserve something of far greater than what it is that you, they deserve you to deal with it in a different way. But you know what? All of us deserve the pit of hell, every last one of us, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. But out of God's great mercy, he says, I'm not going to give that to you if you place your faith in my son, Jesus Christ. I've made a way to restore you back to myself. But not only that, in Matthew 5, 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Somehow, we've changed this translation to read peacekeepers. You ever seen the UN, the United Nations, the little blue ninja turtles that wear the little, the little helmets and stuff like that? You ever seen them? You know what they do? There's, there's conflict between this country and this country, and so what they do is they, they come in and they stand in between this country and this country. Now, as soon as the bullets start flying, they, they're gone because their job is not to come and make peace in that region. That job is to come and try to keep the peace. There's no real peace that is established by their presence. 
And far too often the church is looking like the blue ninja turtles than they are the army of God that says, no, 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 no. Jesus didn't leave the throne room of heaven to try to keep peace with sinners and God. Now, now God, don't be too, too mad at them. Don't, don't, I know they've sinned against you. And, and, hey, you guys, if you'll just try your best. No, no, no. He came to make peace. The wrath of God will be poured out on you one day. But I love you so much that I'll go to the cross and I'll allow that wrath that is meant for you to be poured out on me. If you will but place your faith in me, it will be satisfied and you can be restored back to a perfect and a holy God. The cross is evidence of confrontation that is necessary to bring peace. We must be willing to confront the evil in the world around us so that we can bring peace in the name of Jesus Christ. And the way we accomplish that is through the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. A working definition of peacemaker is someone who is actively seeking to reconcile people to God and to one another. I love this. This, this ought to be the heart that we desire for each individual, even our enemies. Number 6, 24 through 26 says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the peace that is referred to in Numbers is the Hebrew term shalom. The idea, it's not just peace, it's not just absence of hostility and conflict, but it's the very presence of God. That's what I desire for each and every one of you, and that ought to be the desire of our heart for each individual that we encounter in this world, even the ones that are like nails on the chalkboard. You know that person in your life? Maybe you get a mental picture of them right now. Just nails on, just, I mean, they brighten the room when they leave it. You know what I'm saying? That individual. The heart's desire of all of God's people ought to be that this would be a reality for them as well. Because Christ was about restoring that which was broken. The followers of Christ ought to be about that as well. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Y'all ready for Jesus? I mean, you, you see the world around us. I don't know about you, but there are times, I, come on, Jesus. Like, how much more? Look at, look at what is going on around us. Man, Jesus, come on back. Now, that's, I think that's twofold. That's a prayer that ought to be in the hearts of God's people because we ought to have a longing to be with Jesus. But that ought to be something that, that is at kind of the back of our mind as well because if Jesus Christ were to come back right now, everybody that's never placed their faith in Jesus Christ would be separated from him for eternity. And I want everybody to come to faith in Christ Jesus. And that's not my flesh. That's the Holy Spirit in me because that's a reflection of God Almighty because the passage goes on to say, the Lord's not, for, not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That ought to be the desire of all of our hearts, that everybody comes to faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we ought to be peacemakers proclaiming the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those around us. But look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, I think sometimes we look at and we, we look at the intensity and the speed of that day and we fail to realize the day of the Lord will come. Doesn't matter how it comes. 
God's word lays out for us that it's going to come like a thief in the night. But you better believe God's word is settled in heaven. It will come. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, in Revelations 14... In fact, why don't you turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 14. Let's just look at that together and then we'll, I think this is important. Starting in verse 17, Revelation 14, 17. This is a day of judgment. It's a picture of, of, of the judgment that is to come. There's two judgments. There's a judgment of the wheat and there's a judgment of the grapes. The grapes are going to experience the wrath of God. The wheat, the great harvest. Oh, Jesus said that the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Revelation 14, 17. Then another angel came out of the, or excuse me, back up to uh, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped and that is the picture of all those that are in Christ Jesus the great harvest that is made by our Lord for all those that are in Christ and now it's offset with the picture of the next harvest then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar the angel who has authority over the fire and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of god the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600. That's five feet. That's a, that's a picture of the great battle that is to come. The day of judgment for the enemies of God will be made his footstool. The question is, are you harvest? Are you the grapes that will be thrown in the winepress? The goats or the sheep? The saved or the lost? How do you know if you're saved? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you given your life to Jesus? Not have you attended church. Not whether or not your mama and daddy are Christians. Look, God doesn't have any grandchildren, not one. Doesn't matter if your parents were pastors. Doesn't matter if you went to VBS one time. Doesn't even matter if you walked an altar one time, walked an aisle. Have you truly cried out to God in your sin, repented of it, and placed your faith in Jesus? And if you haven't, I want you to know, at any moment, the sky can be rolled up like a scroll. And the days of judgment can fall upon us all. My heart's prayer is that while God is still patient today, you will find the rest that the author of Hebrews speaks of in chapters 3 and 4 by placing your faith in Christ Jesus.